0: Reveal is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com, Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who save with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary.
1: From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. And today, we're re-airing a show we first brought you earlier this year. It starts with a story of a friend of mine, an engineer and music producer, Maurice Ricks. But everybody calls him Mo. I think we met, uh, well, I know it was over 20 years ago.
2: Big Band Theory. Yeah, Big Band Theory. I
1: lay down the foundation of my the Big Band Theory was a 15-piece hip-hop band with this conscious vibe. In the 90s, they were huge in my hometown of Jacksonville, Florida. I mean, they would pack out every club that they played. So please correct me if I'm wrong, but back in the time of Big Band Theory, I remember that, like, you had gotten sick. And I—because I, I remember, like, being worried about you. Like, everybody was like, "Mo is in the hospital. but I, I And I knew that it had something to do with your heart and that you had some heart problems. So— you know, so that was like 20 years ago. Can right. you take us back to the, the beginning?
2: Yeah. um, well, I was born with kidney problems. So, there, you know, I've been dealing with that my whole life. And as the kidney problems progressed, the heart stuff progressed as well. Um, so it finally ended up in congestive heart failure. Congestive
1: heart failure then is is different than, say, like a heart attack, right? Right.
2: It's like the weakening of your heart, basically. And then from there, it progressed to the heart failure and then to the point we're at now, you know, needing a transplant, a kidney transplant and a heart transplant.
1: There are at least half a million people like Mo in the U.S. who need new organs, but fewer than 25 percent of them meet the criteria to get on the waiting list. Mo remembers the mixed emotions he felt when he learned
2: he made it. You know, you know, I want to hurry up. I want to get this heart and kidney and blah, blah, blah. But then you sit there and think about it. Somebody has to pass away for you to get what you need. Mo needed
1: someone whose heart and kidney would make a good match. In July 2019, he was in a hospital in Gainesville. After being there for months, because he was that sick, his doctor told him that a heart and kidney were available. A match for
2: Mo. Wow. (laughs) I guess I I can't even describe that feeling, man. It's like lightning strike or, you know, like, because I just wasn't expecting it
1: but there's no time to reflect surgery prep starts immediately and as the nurses are cleaning mo's body and sterilizing instruments a small medical team jumps on a private plane to retrieve the heart and bring it back the team is led by dr mark staples
3: well this was a beautiful heart it was strong and it squeezed very vigorously and it was just the right size It stopped when we put the preservative solution in it exactly like it was supposed to.
1: Time is critical. As soon as the heart was out, the team races back to the airport. They have just four hours or it will be too old to transplant. Mo's new kidney will come later. Kidneys last a lot longer on ice.
3: We left the kidneys behind uh, when we left the operating room, and those were going to be transported potentially even with a commercial jet.
1: Mo has to be ready when his new heart arrives. So as Dr. Staples starts the return trip with Mo's new heart in a cooler, surgeons are opening him up in the operating room back in Gainesville.
3: When we got to the airport, they were probably just cutting through his sternum.
1: The small plane takes off and almost instantly it hits a flock of birds. The plane really shook. At first, the pilot keeps on climbing and we
3: got above the cloud layer at about 8,000 feet, and smoke came into the cabin.
1: The plane makes an emergency landing at a small airfield near Atlanta. Dr. Staples jumps out. Pilots and other private planes are sitting around on the tarmac. The clock is ticking.
3: I had a white coat and scrubs on, literally running from plane to plane with a cooler, saying, can you take this, please? And then it was a little more anger. Why can't you take this heart?
1: Nobody will take it. And pretty soon,
2: in Gainesville, Mo, starts to wake up. Things are clinking and clanking around in the operating room. They opened my eyes, and I just kind of laid there. But I could tell something was off.
1: He doesn't recognize any of the hospital staff around him, and they won't tell him anything.
2: I was like, well, maybe, maybe I died, and they're transitioning me to, you know, go to heaven or hell. And they, you know, they don't just tell you right away that you're dead, you know, <laughs> they, they kind of ease you into it. <laughs> he's obviously
1: not dead, but he's shocked when he hears what happened. He gets through it just like he's overcome a lot of challenges in his life with a great sense of humor. then they told me what happened
2: and conspiracy theories went, and I'm like, no, there's no way. And I
1: I should also tell you, like, if nobody else has told you, that everybody in Jacksonville had conspiracy theories
2: (laughs) as as well. Like, everybody was like, man. Like, no way. Man. Yeah, me too. Me too. Really? I was doing the same thing.
1: But underneath the laughter, I think there's got to be a lot of fear because Mo is still waiting for a new heart and kidney.
2: It's a huge deal, man. It's, you know, it's... Organs. I mean, you're taking a piece of one person and putting it into another person. You don't want to waste that,
1: because there's so many people out there waiting. Dr. Staples says the heart he was trying to get to mow was eventually used for research purposes. A flock of birds taking down a small plane carrying a human heart has got to be super rare. I mean, we couldn't find another case like this. But sometimes organs fly on commercial flights, which made us curious to know how often they have problems. It's a question reporter, Janelle Alicia of Kaiser Health News, has been asking ever since December 2018, when a human heart was accidentally left on a commercial flight.
0: The Southwest Airlines flight had to turn around because someone left a human heart on board. When
1: Janelle heard this, she started wondering which organs fly commercial and how often do they get lost? just like your luggage bike. We teamed up with Jonelle and Kaiser Health News to find out. And along the way, we stumbled onto an open secret in organ donation. Here's Jonelle.
4: That heart left on a Southwest flight made me curious because in more than a decade of reporting on organ transplants, it was the first time I'd heard such a story. It was all over the news.
0: The tissue was left behind. Just like a suitcase.
4: It seemed like even the experts were surprised.
0: In 30 years in the field, the director of Sierra Donor Services says she's never seen anything like this happen.
4: Hearts going to patients for transplant never fly commercial. This heart was headed to a processing center where its valves and tissues would be kept for later use. Still, I wondered if losing organs when they fly commercial really is rare, and my curiosity eventually took me to Orlando, Florida, and the offices of Our Legacy, a nonprofit organization that manages organ donations in this region.
5: Hi, hi, great to meet you. Come on in. Sorry. Jenny
4: McBride is the executive director. Her organization mostly works with kidneys and keeps them behind this locked door, along with the supplies to preserve them. I
5: forgot the stupid number. Thank you. So this is where the guys keep all the supplies for organ recovery. There's preservation solutions in there, some blood from previous cases. Oh, okay, so we
4: have a freezer full of... Uh, ice. That's sterile, just
6: sterile ice, ice.
4: Wow. Sterile saline sterile saline ice. Jenny started her career as an intensive care nurse working with families whose loved ones were dying. That's where she first learned about organ donation.
5: And it just it just resonated, you know, the fact that you could do something good out of such a bad situation and help a family and help someone else at the same
4: time. It was just a natural connection. Such a connection she left nursing for this. Our legacy is one of 58 groups in the US called Organ Procurement Organizations. Each covers a different geographic area. People here talk to families whose loved ones are dying about organ donation, and then make sure that if their hearts, lungs, livers, and kidneys can be transplanted, they get to the patients who need them.
5: Where's the light? There it is.
4: Jenny leads me to a back room with machines about the size of a home office printer They've got lots of tubes and buttons.
5: Those are pumps that the kidneys are put on.
7: And we assess they,
5: them. They perfuse the kidneys with? Um, it's just a normal preservation solution. And that would extend to kidneys? It extends them. It makes it, them transplantable for about 30
4: hours. This is why kidneys can fly commercial. They can last a pretty long time outside a human body. Last year, Jenny's organization shipped out 173 kidneys. You always hold your breath and kind of say
5: a little prayer that everybody does what they're supposed to do along the way.
4: I asked Jenny, how often are kidneys affected by commercial flight problems?
5: We've been unaware of how many kidneys have gotten waylaid over the years. That's not a number that's transparent to us.
4: Jenny's not the only one who doesn't know. The industry doesn't keep track, nor does any government agency responsible for either health or transportation. Kim Young works with Jenny and oversees a lot of the organ shipments.
8: I'm a registered nurse,
4: and I
8: am an organ recovery coordinator at Our Legacy, and I have been here ten, almost 10 years total.
4: One Saturday last October, Kim was in charge of a kidney that had been donated. As the
8: team lead, I take over the kidney allocation. Um, The surgery was over.
4: Now, the clock is ticking. They have about 30 hours to find a recipient, transport the kidney to the hospital, and transplant it. First, her team tries to find someone nearby.
8: We had went through our
4: local centers, and they did not accept the kidney. When Kim can't find a recipient in the same region as the donor, she follows protocol and calls a national coordination center called UNIS, the United Network for Organ Sharing. It's the federal contractor that oversees organizations like Jenny's. A few hours later, a UNIS coordinator calls her back. So I remember getting the call. She told me that she
8: had placed the kidney, um, and I said, okay,
4: and I, I went back to sleep. Kim has worked three 24-hour shifts this week. She's catching any rest she can. Eunice takes over managing the transportation, and the kidney gets on the first leg of its journey, leaving Orlando at 7 p.m. and uh, number two for departure. It has 12 hours to get to its final destination, North Carolina.
2: Orlando, flight to Tennessee, the cap for departure.
4: The kidney is supposed to make a connecting flight in Atlanta.
8: And I just remember... The phone ringing, and I answered it, and she said the kidney did not get
4: on the flight. Instead of being put on the next flight to Greensboro, the kidney is still sitting in Atlanta.
8: And she said, the surgeon in North Carolina is having a fit. And then I called Jenny. Kim's
4: words were, we have a problem. Jenny's out of town on a camping trip, and she knows there isn't a lot she can do from there.
5: Well, your heart sinks. You know, because you know it's 11 o'clock at night, you know it's Atlanta, you know there aren't uh, any other commercial flight options. And so Kim's words were, What do we do now? I said, Well, I said, we're going to have to figure out how to get it out of there.
4: The organ is flying on Delta, which is based in Atlanta. Delta advertises a special service for organ transportation. Delta Cargo is the trusted carrier for many critical and time-sensitive shipments. When
1: human transplant organs need to get somewhere in a hurry, Dash Critical makes it happen on the very next Delta nonstop flight.
4: But just from talking to surgeons, I learn about another kidney that had a problem flying Delta just two weeks earlier. That time, the surgeon says he was told at first that the kidney had missed its connection in Atlanta. As it turns out, it had actually gotten to its final destination. How exactly that happened is not clear, but the kidney sat in the airport for three hours.
1: It's another way Delta Cargo delivers every day for our customers.
4: I talked to nearly a dozen transplant surgeons around the country. They all knew about transportation troubles. Here's Dr. David Axelrod, who does transplants at the University of Iowa.
1: Last week, I turned down a kidney that I would have taken because it missed the last flight out that night, and it was going to go from having 12 hours of cold
4: time to having 28 hours of cold time. Some of these organs end up getting trash. Dr. Christy Gooden is a transplant surgeon in Dallas. And that that's just ridiculously frustrating. We have way too many people on the list, way too many people waiting to lose an organ just because of logistics. Some delayed organs can be rerouted for research, but David Axelrod says kidneys shouldn't be missing those flights in the first place.
1: You know, if Amazon can figure out when your paper towels and your dog food is going to arrive, it certainly should be reasonable that we ought to track life-saving organs which are in
4: chronic shortage. But here is one big difference. Amazon controls every aspect of its system. Organ distribution relies on multiple partners. Nonprofits like Jenny's that recover the organs, doctors, courier services— and, of course, the airlines. It's not just Delta. Southwest, American, United, and Alaska all fly human organs and tissue. And because it's not a centralized system, nobody keeps comprehensive records. But as I'm researching, I discover that Eunice has been quietly collecting numbers on transportation problems. I head to their headquarters in Richmond, Virginia.
5: Organ Center, this is Lauren.
4: On the outside, it's a sleek concrete and glass building. Inside, the offices and hallways look down into the call center. It's like a fishbowl.
9: Is this liver primary or backup?
4: This is where Kim Young called when she needed help finding someone to take that kidney, and where the organ coordinator told her it had missed the flight. Eunice coordinates some 1,800 organ and tissue transplants every year. Of those, more than 1,400 are kidneys. Roger Brown runs the place.
10: We are placing up to 24 to 30-plus organs in a 24-hour period, so we're quite busy.
4: Roger is 48 and has worked here since college, after his father got a heart transplant. kind of
10: motivated me a little more to look into this field, and um, so I found this job in the classified section right after church organist, was organ placement specialist, and like, this is a job I have to have.
4: Eunice is all about logistics, but it only switched from using clipboards and paper trails to a computer system in 2016. And with that switch, Roger unintentionally created a system that can count how often transportation problems crop up each year. More than half the time, it's the airline or airport. It could also be problems with couriers or with the OPOs or hospitals on either end. I mean, I think your data shows like 6.5%. Of the shipments had a transportation problem?
10: Yes, that data is correct. The majority of those problem areas are um, delays.
4: And that in the data is called a near miss.
10: Yes. Yeah, it is just a label, but yeah, we chose to use near miss as a label for a delay of two or more hours where the organ ended up still being transplanted at the original intended destination.
4: Eunice also tracks what it calls failures. This means that the person waiting for that organ didn't get it. Someone else might have, or it might not have been transplanted at all. Roger says his data doesn't show whether transportation problems are the only reason. It's important to know that a a delay um, could be a primary
10: reason that an organ was not transplanted. It could be a contributing factor, or it could have nothing to do with the reason that the organ is transplanted.
4: UNIS handles only a portion of all the organs transported nationally, usually ones that are hard to place. Out of just over 8,800 UNIS shipments of organs and tissue over roughly four years, more than 7% had transportation problems. Rogers' numbers also show nearly 170 organs never got transplanted, and almost 370 were delayed between 2 and 12 hours. one of those near misses is the kidney jenny and kim are tracking late that saturday night last october it missed its connecting flight in atlanta and they've got to figure out how to get it to north carolina they now have nine more hours until the transplant surgeon says he won't use it jenny's at a campground Kim is in her spare bedroom at home waiting for Eunice to tell her how much a charter flight will cost.
8: And she called me back and said, you know, it's going to be $15,000 and it will only get there an hour before, if we drive it.
5: I said, okay, then send it on the ground. And that's what we did. And then you just worry, was that
4: the right thing? I I didn't sleep the rest of the night. Jenny and Kim worry about every organ they send off. But talking about transportation problems like missed flights is a sensitive topic in the transplant community. In one of my earliest conversations with Jenny on the phone, she admitted it's hard to talk about.
5: I mean, I myself feel reluctant. But I, I am, I'm going to try and push through. Um, anytime that you cast any doubt, that this system isn't working perfectly, you feel like you risk having people
11: take themselves off the donor registry.
4: And many leaders in the organ procurement organizations downplay the losses of kidneys on commercial flights.
11: My name is Kevin O'Connor. I am the president and CEO of Life Center Northwest.
4: Life Center Northwest recovers organs from Washington, Montana, parts of Idaho, sometimes even remote areas of Alaska, and ships them for transplant. Kevin says he doesn't think transportation problems are a big issue.
11: For over 30 years, uh, and, and, and literally tens of thousands of organs being transported, um, I, I can count on, on the fingers of one hand the number of times that, um, bec- because of a transportation uh, glitch, that an organ was ultimately not transplanted.
4: I tell Kevin what the UNIS data shows—dozens of kidneys discarded and hundreds of near-misses. What do you make of, of of that? Is that acceptable? Well, I, no. I, I, in
11: fact, I, I think uh, even one kidney being thrown away because of transportation errors is not acceptable.
4: Kevin points out that organs don't get transplanted for a lot of reasons. For example, a surgeon might discover an organ is lower quality than expected or it just might not fit the patient physically.
11: I, in spite of our best efforts, uh, there there will always be occasions where, um, where where an organ, an opportunity for a transplant will be missed.
4: Without more complete numbers, it's impossible to know how transportation problems compare to the other reasons. But when Kim Young, Jenny's organ coordinator, learns that more than 7% of shipments handled by Eunice have some kind of transportation problem, she gets mad.
8: Wow, we work so hard. I mean. Our, our motto here at Our Legacy is every organ, every time. And it sickens me to think that organs are being lost and recipients aren't getting them and they're going to have to go on dialysis. For, you know, it, it just sickens
4: me. That kidney Kim was tracking to North Carolina... A courier picked it up at Delta Cargo in Atlanta, drove it through the night, and got it to the transplant center at 6.14 a.m. It's one of the near misses in the data. It arrived with just 46 minutes to spare.
8: It was 29 hours old when he transplanted it. And it shouldn't have happened that the kidney should have been there by two, yeah.
4: Kim and Jenny are relieved that the kidney got transplanted into the patient who was expecting it. But they still want to know why it missed its connection in the first place. A month later, all they've heard from Delta is that a cargo employee in Atlanta set the box aside. Somebody made an independent decision to not put the kidney on the plane. And the boxes say really clearly, human organ. It's very clear, yeah. I try asking Delta.
5: You have reached the voicemail of Adrian T, corporate communications at Delta Airlines. Unfortunately, I was
8: unable to take your call.
4: After multiple calls and emails, I never get a call back. I wrote a letter to Delta laying out the incident in full detail. No one replied. Jenny finally receives written internal reports about what went wrong, from Delta Cargo and from Sterling, the courier service that got the kidney on the first flight. She shows me copies. Delta advertises that it uses GPS trackers to ship human organs. But two problems cropped up in this instance. First, the kidney was allowed to leave Orlando without a GPS. Then, Delta says the reason it was bumped from the connecting flight was there was no tracker available.
5: It was interesting to me that Delta seemed very focused on the GPS.
4: Delta concluded, and I'm reading from the report here that they should assess the business justification to buy more GPS units and develop a more robust inventory management process. Jenny's not satisfied.
5: I'd like to know from Delta why they didn't uh, call the number on the box. I would like to know from Delta why it was more important to have the GPS tracker in place than it was to keep the kidney on its route and get it there in the time frame that it was expected. I just think there's a total absence of understanding what is in that box and why it needs to be treated so delicately.
4: But getting those answers about this one kidney isn't as important to her as fixing the system, making sure transportation problems don't get in the way of saving lives.
5: There's a framework for how patients are referred to us. There are laws and regulations to guide the allocation of organs, but it's becoming more apparent that we have to assure that when a kidney embarks on a journey, that it gets to its final destination the way that destination is intended.
4: Figuring out just how that should work though is still an open question. And this logistics problem is affecting other efforts to improve the system. For example, last year, the transplant community suggested regularly shipping kidneys farther to reach more people and make distribution more fair. But the suggested distance got cut in half because many people, including surgeons, some patients, and OPOs like Jenny's, were worried about transportation.
1: Many thanks to Jonelle Alicia of Kaiser Health News for bringing us that story. Shortly after we first aired it last January, members of both the House and Senate demanded Eunice address this problem, but it continues. So far this year, another 20 kidneys failed to be transplanted after transportation problems. For policymakers who've looked at the big picture of organ donation, transportation is just one of the many things that aren't working as they should. For those organ
12: procurement organizations that are doing a good job, they should keep doing it. And if they're not, they need to be held accountable immediately.
1: When we come back, how the system could work better. And one last thing before we move on. My friend Mo, who didn't get a new heart transplanted because the plane carrying it hit a flock of birds. Well, he got a temporary heart pump implanted. This means he has to haul a big battery pack around and take care of an open wound where the wires run inside. But he's fairly stable, and he's still hoping for a new heart. You're listening to Reveal.
0: Support for Reveal comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com/reveal. That's o d o o.com/reveal. Odoo, modern management made simple. Want a master's degree for a better world? A world where social and environmental justice aren't just buzzwords? Clark University's Department of Sustainability and Social Justice is the place for you. Our master's degrees address the major social and environmental issues facing the world today. Pursue your passion at Clark and create meaningful change with great scholarships, personalized advising, and a welcoming and inclusive community dedicated to changing the world. Visit us online at clarku.edu ssj.
1: From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. On today's rebroadcast, we're looking at organ donation and the ways the system could be working better. On any given day, there are more than 100,000 people in the U.S. who need a replacement for a kidney, heart, liver, or lungs. And each day, almost 20 of them die waiting because an organ isn't found in time shortening that waiting list is a problem Jennifer Erickson has been trying to solve for years. Under President Obama, she worked on organ donation at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. So
12: we started from science and technology and thinking about how we could bioengineer our way out of this in the future. But what was really revelatory to us was realizing how many things could be done to help patients now.
1: But in looking at the system up close, Jennifer saw a lot of things that alarmed her, so much so that she changed her will and a couple months ago decided to write about it. I read your op-ed in the Washington Post saying that you put a clause in your will that when you die, a colleague has to track down what happened to your organs to make sure they got put to good use. Why do you doubt that they would?
12: Well, you know, it's interesting. I knew when I was in the White House that there was inefficiency, that we weren't doing everything we could. But then after I left, I saw data that came out from groundbreaking research at the University of Pennsylvania that showed that up to 28,000 organs go unrecovered every year. That's 17,000 kidneys, almost 8,000 livers, 1,500 lungs, 1,500 hearts. And you think about what that means for patients and for people who love them. You think about what that means for the taxpayers who are paying billions of dollars in in Medicare to keep patients alive on dialysis when a much better treatment for most of them would be a transplant. You're right. I did update my will. I am still an organ donor, and it's so important to me. I just want to make sure that if I die in an organ donation-eligible way um, that we know whether or not that happened.
1: So the story we heard at the beginning of the show is about how organs are lost or delayed when they're being transported. And here's what we found. Over roughly four years, more than 7% of shipments have a transportation problem. And when we counted that up, that included nearly 170 organs that never got transplanted and almost 370 that were delayed between 2 to 12 hours. This isn't a full picture. The data is from just one government contractor that moves human organs around. But what do you think? I mean, do those numbers surprise you?
12: They horrify me. You're talking about hundreds of organs that have been recovered, donors and their families that have made this amazing gift, and then they either don't make it in time and quite literally are thrown away, or even the numbers you mentioned, Al, about getting there late. If an organ comes hours later, let's be clear, that has an implication for that patient. They could die years sooner because that organ was stuck on a plane or in transit, and they'll never
1: know. No one currently tracks organs. Should there be someone doing that? Should there be a, a government agency that that looks into that?
12: Well, you know, there's a there's a web of organ procurement organizations or OPOs that are around the country. They're responsible for a lot of the tracking. And then there's a government contractor that's supposed to oversee all those fifty-eight other government contractors. That's called UNOS. And, you know, clearly something is going wrong if we're Losing hundreds of organs a year, um, either because they've been thrown away or because they've gotten there so late that it's also going to affect patient outcomes. And, you know, you can talk to surgeons. I talked to a surgeon recently who got a kidney not long ago and it arrived to her in a box with tire marks on it. And when she opened it up, it was the consistency of ground meat. She She couldn't use that. She had a patient on the table waiting for it. And I talked to another surgeon recently who was waiting for an organ and it went to a completely different airport in a completely different state. You know, these, in the past, to be honest, I thought those were edge cases. I was more concerned about the organs not being recovered at all. Well, on the back of your reporting, I have two concerns. One, them being recovered, and then two, them getting to patients in a way that can save their life and maximize their life by getting there as quickly as possible.
1: So I think what people who work for OPOs would say is that those numbers are relatively low, that there are about 23,000 kidneys transplanted every year overall, And they're not saying it's not a problem, but it's not a priority problem. What do you think?
12: Tell that to the families that are waiting to get a phone call about an organ transplant.
1: Yeah. Bigger picture, what do you want to change about the system?
12: Accountability. You know, I mentioned there's this network of 58 government contractors, and none of them, not one, has lost a contract in decades. This is a life and death issue. For those organ procurement organizations that are doing a good job, they should keep doing it. And if they're not, they need to be held accountable immediately. The government needs to pull those contracts, needs to demand changes. I'll give credit to the current administration. They have acknowledged that there's a big problem right before the holidays. They published proposed changes to accountability here that actually said the majority of the country is currently served by contractors that are failing in organ donation.
1: Do you have a sense of which OPOs do a good job and which don't?
12: Yeah, the government told us. And when they actually moved to objective data, what they showed in the proposed rule is that the majority are failing. Those who are failing include, like I said, my home state of Virginia, New York City, Los Angeles, Kentucky, South Carolina, Oregon, Iowa. I mean, the list is out there for the public to see. And the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, actually said that the government is not going to stand aside any longer while patients die and government contractors don't do their job.
1: When you say objective data, as I understand it, you're talking about how many people should count as eligible to donate organs once they've passed away because the success of OPOs is measured by how many organs they recover from eligible donors. And as I understand it, right now, OPOs decide what deaths are eligible. So they influence their own success rate. But the administration has used a more objective number from the Centers for Disease Control to figure out who is failing. But not everyone who wants to donate can, right? I mean... What's an eligible death? You're right. You have
12: to die in a way that your organs could still be used. So, you know, there's a small set of ways that that could happen. Um, You have to be otherwise, generally speaking, healthy. So, for example, um, strokes, overdoses, uh, car and motorcycle accidents, you know, these are the kinds of things Uh, Ski accidents we see sometimes that, that lead people to be able to be organ donors. But, you know, you raise a really good point because saying that only a small segment of Americans die in an organ donation eligible way means it's even more important that those wishes be honored. What are the other ways that OPOs need to improve? Sometimes they just don't show up. And I mean that quite literally. It's a tough job. I mean, you are talking to people on what is often the worst day of their life right? As they lose a loved one, often in tragic circumstances. So I'm in no way minimizing the importance and the difficulties of that job. That makes it all the more important. And we know this from the research, that if the OPO personnel show up in a timely and compassionate way, then the vast majority of families will donate. If they don't, if they don't show up at all, they can't donate. If they show up late, if they they show up and their tone isn't so compassionate, again, it, it sounds so obvious, but it's so important what they do and far too often it's failing.
1: How often do they really not show up? Do you have any idea?
12: I don't know from the data to, to be able to tell you when they never showed up, when they showed up late, when they showed up in a way that the family found uncompassionate. I mean, I, I, I don't know the breakdowns of those things. What we know is that The performance around the country is wildly variable. And I'll give you an example. You know, in Nevada, the OPO used to be one of the worst performing OPOs in the country. The board finally woke up, fired the leadership, hired new leadership. By the way, fired them for financial improprieties, not just for not recovering organs, although they were doing a bad job of that too. And within three years, the new leadership team turned it around and they were recovering 67 percent more organs. And what's really alarming to me about that example is think about this. You could have a 67% difference in a life and death issue, and the government still didn't pull the contract.
1: Your dad, I understand, needs a kidney transplant. So this isn't just policy for you. This is personal.
12: My father, uh, he lost his kidneys due to high-grade cancer. He was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. And so this is personal for me. I've seen what it's like, To have someone with organ failure in the family and it's horrific and I'm sure many of your listeners can relate to that and you know again just knowing that thousands of Americans don't have to be in that situation that's what's kept me involved.
1: Jennifer Erickson thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Jennifer Erickson served in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy under President Obama. She continues to work on organ donation. And when we come back, we look at a new ritual that honors the people who are making those donations and helping to give comfort to their family members.
7: To walk those steps behind your son and you realize it's literally two or three hundred people in those halls. Now, that was
1: amazing. You're listening to Reveal. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Today, we've been looking at organ transplants and the challenges of getting organs to patients who are waiting for them. After heart or kidney or liver is recovered, there's a rush of activity to get that organ to the person whose life depends on it. Now, we want to focus on what happens just before that flurry. Because that promise of life means someone has died.
7: My name is Dexter Chris. I am a full professor at uh, SUNY Plattsburgh, and Dalton is my son. He is the third of uh, three children. Dalton is mostly known because he was an outstanding wrestler here in upstate New York. He was such a kind person to everyone that he wrestled. He would win and then pick him up off off the mat. You know, he's just that kind of guy. Dalton graduated from high school June 2019. He was going to major in criminal justice there at SUNY Plattsburgh, and he was going to also minor in music as well as history. He loved history a lot. August 19th, the day of the accident, changed everything for the Chris family. Barbara, my wife, and Dalton were coming from work, so they actually worked together at the resort And they were maybe six miles from the house. It seems that Dalton dozed off and crossed the median, went down into a little drainage ditch. But that drainage ditch was just enough to send the the Jeep that they were driving airborne.
1: Dalton's Jeep ended up hitting a house. He hit his head in the force of the crash. Barbara was badly injured too. They were both unconscious.
7: I got the phone call, and, and when I got there, both Barbara and Dalton were next to each other. And to look at them, there was no reason to think that Barbara was going to survive, and there was no reason to think that Dalton wouldn't survive. It just looked like he was fine, and Barbara was not. They were both in such serious condition
1: that they were airlifted from Plattsburgh to the University of Vermont Medical Center in Burlington. They were just rooms away from one another in the ICU, After Dexter and his daughter Danielle arrived at UVM, doctors explained that it was Dalton who was more seriously hurt. His neck had been broken in the crash. His brain had bled so much, he was suffering a series of strokes.
7: Now I'm being told that Dalton was not going to make it. I remember that like it was yesterday, and just like it was yesterday, I couldn't believe that's what they were saying, that he was not going to make it. I think it was Jennifer, who found a a quiet room.
9: My name is Jennifer DeMarone, and I'm the organ donation coordinator at University of Vermont Medical Center.
7: So when my daughter Danielle and I sat down, Jennifer presented to me Dalton's driver's license. So you you can imagine, you know, my son and my wife, they had cut their clothes away and their jewelry had been removed and all that kind of stuff. And in the midst of all that chaos, there's Dalton's driver's license. And she points out to me that he's an organ donor. And I started to smile and cry, and I said, yes, he is.
1: Jennifer explained she still needed the family's permission to make sure that Dalton's wish to be an organ donor was carried out. Dexter gave the okay.
7: And she said, to celebrate this wonderful choice that my son made and others that um, find themselves given their organs, an honor walk has been established, and UVM is, is one of those places where the person's last wishes can be carried out. An honor walk is a new
1: ritual being adopted by hospitals around the U.S. It takes place after a patient has died and just before their organs are recovered. It's meant to honor the gift they're making.
9: An honor walk is when staff from all across the hospital come and line the halls between the ICU and the operating room as the patient and the family take their final walk all together um, before the donation.
1: UVM Medical Center started doing honor walks in August of 2018. Carol Maxwell is an intensive care nurse there.
6: Before honor walks, sometimes the families would leave before we would bring their loved one's body to the operating room. And it, it felt kind of bizarre and, and lonely and strange. After
1: doctors made the official call that Dalton had died, hospital staff dove into planning the honor walk. Jennifer says they try to add personal touches to the walks whenever possible. They found out that Dexter was a director of a gospel choir, one that Dalton was involved in, too.
9: And so as we were planning the honor walk, someone said, we should have a gospel choir here.
7: We were able to bring the gospel choirs that I direct.
9: We were in the ICU, and the timing of the operating room was about, I'd say, 15 minutes away. And all of a sudden, you could just hear. If you listened carefully, you could hear this beautiful music. And if it was loud, you couldn't hear it. You needed to to listen. And they were warming up, and they were warming up with amazing grace. And it, it just immediately brought chills when you heard just something so beautiful in in the controlled chaos of an ICU blind, so Fifteen minutes before we leave the ICU, a final pop-up comes out on the computer. So everyone's computer gets a pop-up that says, in 15 minutes, the honor walk is going to be happening. At that point, we start lining everyone up. We had moved Dalton into his mom's room, Barbara, so that they could be together one last time.
7: So I felt it important that Barbara, if she had any level of consciousness at that point, would have the opportunity to touch her son's hand for the last time. And so Barbara, myself, and Danielle and Lakita, maybe my mom, I can't remember all the hands that were in in this, um, but we all held hands together at that one moment.
6: And as we came out of her room after that really touching moment, um... I could hear the choir singing, and it just sent chills down my spine uh, because I knew that they all loved Dalton and loved Dexter and loved Barbara and uh, that it was a very close community.
7: And they started to sing this song, All We Asked, by Dunny McClurkin. And it's a beautiful song which talks about someone in their last days about to die. And the song is so... um, It resonates great with Dalton.
9: And it was joyful at a really, really sad time.
6: There was joy. The hallways were packed on both sides.
7: With not only friends, not only athletes that Dalton had known, but so many UVM staff.
9: You see uniforms from all across the hospital.
6: From housekeeping to folks who work in the cafeterias to doctors to nurses and residents
7: from all over the hospital. To walk those steps behind your son and you realize it's literally two or 300 people in those halls. Now that was amazing. Take me home, Quar, take me home.
10: With you, my Lord, when my life is
6: we walked through the hallways um, and went through the operating room hallway to the door to where you have to be sterile to go in. And that's where we stopped and they finished singing there and gave the family a few minutes to say goodbye.
7: You know, I'm a a fairly strong guy emotionally, but um, when you realize... When you realize you're not going to see your son breathe again, when he's not going to be warm again, his heart's not going to beat again. The next time you see him, that became final. <laughs> the next match, boy, win the next match, all right. One more point, get two, all right. Get two. Okay. I guess the more, the most uncomfortable part was after the honor walk is complete, you walk back down that hall. Now, that was the most shocking thing. People were still there. It's not like they said, okay, we're out. You know? <laughs> they were, they were still... The honor walk is, is, is uh, forward and reverse. i think about if Dalton was not an organ donor, there would have been just, I shouldn't say just sorrow. There would have been great memories. But the very fact there's a legacy left in so many people after Dalton, there's a level of celebration that would not normally be there. Up to 50, if not more, people that Dalton is able to help. According to a letter I received from the organ donation people there in in Albany, New York, there's a young man, a father, 44-year-old father, who received a Dalton heart. That that 44-year-old father, his family, his children... They're celebrating. The recipient of one of Dalton's corneas in Albany, the restoration of sight, to them, that's a miracle. The person in Seattle, Washington, who received Dalton's other cornea, same thing. That's such a celebration that deserves to be celebrated.
1: Our story was produced by Tina Antolini. This performance of All We Ask is by the Plattsburgh State Gospel Choir, directed by Dexter Chris, Dalton's father. Our lead producer for this week's show is Emily Harris. It was edited by Telenitis. Special thanks to our Kaiser Health News partners, including Jonelle Alicia, Tanya English, Diane Weber, Elizabeth Lucas, Kelly Johnson, and a special shout out to Mac, also known as Mary Agnes Carey. We had help this week from Danielle Chris and Reveals Laura Sarcheski. Kavya Sukumar of the Bad Idea Factory worked on our data analysis. Victoria Baronetsky is Reveal's General Counsel. Our production managers Mwende Inahosa. Original score and sound design by the Dynamic Duo, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando, my man Yo Aruda. They had help this week from Amy Mustafa and Najibamini. Our CEO is Krista Scharfenberg. Matt Thompson is our editor-in-chief. And our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising-Simons Foundation, the Democracy Fund, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, and remember... There is always more to the story.